I'm looking at this uh, graphic you sent me, Russ, about uh, how people consume music these days, and it's, I gotta say, it's pretty depressing. It's interesting. Depressing, maybe. For me, it's depressing because, um, <laughs> according to this graph, CDs shouldn't even be being manufactured anymore, but they're still my favorite way to listen to music. And what we're referring to is a kind of visual representation of music sales by media from 1973 through yeah. 2022. Wow. And it starts over on the left, and it's got vinyl, of course, as the largest category with 8-track. 8-track, <laughs> I remember those. And gradually, cassette tape takes over. I remember I had a big collection of cassette tapes at yeah, one point. I, I remember as well. that. And then we get into the 1990s where CD becomes the uh, dominant form. And that was my personal golden age. Like, I loved everything about that. Well, not everything, right. but you know, I liked everything about like the way music was uh, you know, transmitted and stuff like that. Right. There were long albums. They were kind of well thought out, I thought. And then MP3 makes its way in and starts mm -hmm. to swell up right around 2010 or so. It gets bigger. Interestingly, yeah. something I never thought of that ringtone, <laughs> ringtone <laughs> revenues <laughs> were pretty big back in about 2007. People were actually paying money to have custom ringtones. I guess when oh, the iPhone God. came out, everyone wanted to be cool. Yeah. And then we've got digital license. So I guess those are uh, some kind of downloads here. And then paid streaming is the largest category now with ad-supported streaming larger than MP3s and CDs. All right. That's unbelievable to me because that means that you can listen to an album, which nobody does anymore. They all listen to like, singles. And then there's an ad yeah, <laughs> between, between songs, songs yeah. every once in a while. That would drive me crazy. I don't want to hear ads like I'm listening to the radio. I I've got like this, um, <laughs> I'm listening to my music here. 2020 vinyl units outsold CDs for the first time since 1986. And digital formats made up 89% of U.S. music revenue in 2022 with paid and ad-supported streaming making up 78% of all revenue. A CD is really small down there. Yeah, at least they still make them. Not only that, but uh, I just want to say, God bless the Beast label. We'll be talking about them a little bit next week because we have a new uh, release by them on the plans for next week. But, right. uh, you know, they still make super audio CD. There's another thing that drives me crazy. Spatial audio. This is the new thing. Right. And in this case... On a Super Audio CD, you have five channels, and the, the laser is reading how they're kind of laid out, and it sends it to the speakers, basically. So it's already pre-recorded the way you're going to hear it on the CD somehow. Mm -hmm. But the thing about spatial audio is that the computer is deciding in the moment where all the sound is going to go, and I don't like that. Yeah. I'm good with just two channels. I got almost two ears left, and yeah, yeah. good enough for me. I heard um, George Martin's um, son, what's his name? He's kind of producing these stereo mixes of all the old Beatles albums. And he did one for Revolver. And for this one, he had to use AI to kind of help oh, them separate the tracks and stuff because of the way it was recorded. And I heard this, and I don't know, man. I don't like the, like the body of it sounds a little weird to me. Like all these mm. like individual lines just kind of sound thin. They don't sound like all packed in the way they were. Like on the original albums. Mm. And I don't know, it drives me crazy. I don't really like it. I got to say, and that's what, like, my favorite Beatles album too. But I still like the old ones. I, you know, even though in Eleanor Rigby, you know, everything's like in one channel. And then for the chorus, suddenly it goes into both <laughs> channels. And then the verses are all only in one channel. The other channel is just completely blank. There's nothing right. there. But nevertheless, it's still, 
I'm just used to that, I guess. I don't know. I just like the way it sounds. Well, you're listening to the opening musings yeah. of the Adult Music Podcast here. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your co-host, Mike. You know what? Let's not even talk about music today. Let's just rant for three hours. What do you think? <laughs> well, we could probably do that. <laughs> we yeah. could. Maybe that'll be on our... our <laughs> we should have a special episode. Mike and Russ rant about how awful the music industry is. <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah, technology brings changes, and we've lived through a lot of different formats. And and they're not always good, as we're always seeing. Good. Yeah. But if not for streaming, uh, people wouldn't be listening to us. And we wouldn't be doing this either, so there you go. Exactly. You know. So well, we're happy to listen to music uh, streaming CD, as long as it sounds good and we can yeah. get access to it. And we're here to share with you all of our favorite picks every week in the classical and jazz world. And it's available on CD. Add that yes. one in for me. That's me. I'm just like that. That's just the way I am. <laughs> anyway, we're here on episode 138, getting close to 150. We'll be there yeah. soon. And as always, for all the music we're going to talk about tonight, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music. That's streaming, yes, for everything we're going to talk about. Also, at the top of the description, you can get a link to the full episode playlist, all the music in one place on Deezer can get the podcast there, too, if you want to listen to everything in one place. That's CD quality streaming music from France. Now, if the full description or the recording links or list aren't clear on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, because we're out there on all these different apps around the world, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow for this and all other episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend about the podcast. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the music category recommendations. We get new listeners that way. Come over and follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there. You can see our handsome radio faces over there. And you can get extra <laughs> info about new releases throughout the week. Leave a message or comment if you'd like. And if you have any questions or comments you want to get in touch directly, you can reach us by email. Our address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We also want to recommend our friends over at The Same Difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. That's AJ and Johnny, who look at several versions of the same jazz standard in each episode. Comes out twice a month. They play little parts of each version, talk about the history, what they like and don't like. I think they've just come back from the Sun Valley Jazz Festival, where they meet up every year, so they're all excited and ramped up. And we had them as guests on our podcast a few weeks back, and we're going to hopefully get on their show before the end of the year. We're working out a date now yeah. and do some more standards discussion. You'll find a link to their podcast at the bottom of this episode description, and you'll also hear a little promo from them at the end of the audio of this episode if you stick around to the end. I just thinking Radio Faces would be a great band name. <laughs> we already have Radiohead, though. People probably get confused. So Could be. And for the music we're going to discuss tonight, we're also going to have some sound samples. So here's our fair use disclaimer. The music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. And we also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high quality downloads to support the artists. Okay. You've got a real... Variety-packed classical program this week. <laughs> we do, and there's a lot to say about it. See, I think you're going to be hearing my voice a lot. So if you're not happy about that, you might want to tune out now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Stay on. You're going to get a good education. 
because I really did a lot of work this week. Are we ready to just launch it? Because this is going to be, a, I think, a long episode. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I've see. got some really great jazz in the second half, too. You so do. We're so. have to hear lots of samples, too. So, all right. Yeah. Strap in your seatbelts and uh, get a beverage. Because I'll do what be I can. Yeah. Okay. Well, or if you're driving a truck, just keep going. Oh, by the way, my brother wrote to me and he said uh, he's not too happy <laughs> if he discovered something that I've known for 40 years when I was back driving my car back in the U.S. that classical music can't really be heard in the car stereo. So he says, when my samples come on, you can't really hear them. And I'm like, yeah, there's not really much you can do about that because that road noise just kind of covers it up. Classical music is meant to be listened to in the home or in the uh, hot tub if you have that uh, equipment in there. It's just kind of quiet music, okay? Yeah, you got to reduce the background noise. Got to reduce the background noise, and that's why you want CD <laughs> or non-vinyl for classical, anyway. Right. All right, so our first classical um, recording for this week is by a composer I hadn't heard of until this year, and his name is Ludwig Daser. He's a Renaissance-era composer. So this is going to be religious music, church music, so polyphonic vocal music. And the record we're going to talk about is Misa Pater Noster and other works performed by Cinquecento. Renaissance Vocal, in parentheses, I think. I don't know. They're called Cinquecento. Anyway, this is on the Hyperion label. And you know, this is the first um, Hyperion release we're doing since they uh, were bought by um, Universal Music. So that's pretty cool. We can do some samples this week. Okay, now who is Ludwig Das? I'll tell you more about him in a minute. But his name came to my attention because... um, a record of his music called Simply Polyphonic Masses won the um, the Gramophone Award this year for the best early music album. Hmm. And that got my attention because we had done, we had talked about some of the other um, albums that they were nominated for that category, and we thought they were really amazing. And I remember looking at this list saying, one of them was Josquin, when we did Tante right. earlier in the year. Well, that was the only one we did that's on their list. But even there's a William Byrd one. And I thought, man, this is a really... Um, heavy um, category this year. The one that won was the uh, composer I hadn't heard of. And I was kind of interested in that, so I listened to that record. It was called uh, Polyphonic Masses, and it was by um, the Huelgas Ensemble and directed by Paul Van Neville on the Deutsche Harmonia Mundi label. And I listened to it, and it was pretty, um, it was really interesting. It was really inventive. It was a little different. That's usually the case when you hear a new composer in Renaissance music. They're just little things they do Mm -hmm. that are different than the others. One of the things I'm getting from listening to these uh, Renaissance um, albums so closely on this podcast is that um, when you kind of examine them to try to figure out what to say about them, you start to notice there are slightly different styles from eras or like places in Europe where they were working and things like that. Because this this music is made for for church, for services. It wasn't made for, you know, performance. You know, it was part of the worship service. Except that I guess professional singers sang it. I doubt a congregation was going to sing any of these polyphonic masses. I mean, you had to be trained to do this. So anyway, there was that album, and I noticed it was recorded in 2021. It came out earlier this year. And now we have this one by Cinquecento on Hyperion, recorded in October 2022. And this kind of makes me wonder, was Cinquecento aware that the Huelgas Ensemble had recorded those works by Daza? Because mm. there was a long lag between the recordings, but the recording itself didn't come out commercially until this year. But you don't know what people in the business are kind of right. aware of. You know what I mean? They might know that you know their colleagues recorded this album before it comes out. I'm really curious about that. So if any of them are listening, send us a, an email and let us know. Yeah, I'd really like to know that. It'd be interesting to know. 
So as far as I know, these are the only two albums made of his music so far. And by the way, the Huagas Ensemble is planning another one, which I'll kind of mention in a minute. But let's talk about this one by Hyperion. First of all, Cinquecento, the uh, Renaissance Vocal, the uh, group that's um, performing this, they're a pretty interesting ensemble. They are five professional singers from five different European countries. Oh, mm. You got to wonder how they even met. Those countries are Austria, Belgium, England, Germany, and Switzerland. I'll give you their names. Terry Vey from Swiss. He's a countertenor. Achim Schulz from German and Tore Tom Dennis. Achim Schulz is German and Tore Tom Dennis is Belgium and they're both tenors. Tim Scott Whiteley from England is a baritone and Ulfried Staber, Austrian, is the bass. Now on this recording, one of the things we know about um, Dasser's music is that it was, wasn't performed by single voices. They were always kind of at least two to a part. So on this album, um, these uh, singers are assisted by Franz Wittnum and Philipp Damek, both countertenors, Tomasz Leitkep, tenor, Colin Mason, baritone, and Joel Fredrickson, bass. Okay, Ludwig Daser, who is he? He is the least known, I bet you figured that out, of the three chapel masters and composers at the Munich Court Chapel during the 16th century. And that's because the other two, Ludwig Senfel and Orlando de Lassus, have had a greater impact on our perception of music in 16th century southern Germany. Notice how I said our perception and not on music itself, because we're still sort of studying hmm. uh, this era. Uh, scholars are all coming up with interesting things all the time about the past. Dazert came from a family of Munich fishermen who were closely connected with the Bavarian ducal family hmm. because they were purveyors to the court. They, they brought fish to the duke basically, is what happened there. And Dazer began as a chorister in the Munich Court Chapel. Then he became a composition student of Senfel, who was one of the great composers of that era in Renaissance music in German, in that area, I should say. Dazer was made chapel master in 1552, and he kept the post for 10 years, but it was a difficult period in part due to disciplinary problems among the musicians, also because of his increasing inclination towards Protestantism. Remember, this is Munich. Southern Germany remained Catholic. The uh, north mm. turned Protestant. In 1556, Orlando de Lassus, already internationally renowned, was engaged as a chapel singer and composer for the secular repertoire of the Munich court. So Dazer had the uh, religious part. And it was only a matter of time before Lassus would take over Dazer's post. Dazer was honorably dismissed in 1562 officially because of health problems, but people suspect it was because he had these Protestant leanings. Because he remained connected to the court chapel after his retirement, he wrote his last three masses for them on commission, and one of them was the Misa Pater Noster heard on this album. And he probably didn't have health problems, because later he would be appointed Kapellmeister to the Stuttgart court of Duke Ludwig III of Württemberg, in 1572. Now that name, Württemberg, should ring a bell because C.P.E. Bach wrote a bunch of uh, sonatas for that court as well. And we heard right. um, Keith Jarrett play them earlier this year. Mm -hmm. Okay, on the recommendation of Crown Prince Wilhelm, uh, Dazer was appointed there, where he wrote German language works for the liturgy of the Württemberg court. Now, I should mention the award-winning Huelgas Ensemble album has two masses from the Munich period. This album that we're hearing now by Cinquecento 
has a mixture of both. It has uh, the mass from the Munich period, and then it has some German language works from the Stuttgart period as well. So we're kind of bringing Catholic and Protestant together on this album. The works on the album accurately illustrate Daz's stylistic range and the genres represented in his oeuvre. So, first of all, our first track, I had to color code this because it's so complicated. <laughs> it's laid out exceptionally well, I should say. And in fact, everything about this album, I'll just you know give the punchline right away, is just fantastic. Mm. It's got great sound. It's great performing. The music is fantastic. You really can't go wrong here. This is going to be another award-winning album, I think. Anyway... The first track, Benedictus Dominus for Eight Voices. This has a double choir scoring in the Venetian polychoral style of Cipriano de Rore, who um, Dazer knew. <laughs> they were also friends. I guess these guys all knew each other. This is from Dazer's time in Munich and anticipates the modern Italian style, which was demanded of him later at the Stuttgart court. It's a setting of Psalm 27, verses 6 to 7. Its musical model is the plain chant melody Feria Sexta Ad Vesperas. All right, sing it for me now. Everybody knows it, right? <laughs> there, there are thousands of these, <laughs> so I can't really tell which is which. The second choir is responsible for the development of the plain chant, while the first choir accompanies harmonically. I want to say, though, at the time, though, people, because they were in church all the time, probably knew all of these, <laughs> these uh, hmm. plain chants. The first choir accompanies harmonically while the second choir um, is responsible for the development of the plain chant. This is unusual because usually these roles are reversed. All right, so let's just get right to a sample so you can just hear the uh, amazing uh, sound that this ensemble gets. bass voice yeah. at the end. You can hear the clear sound, as we've come to expect from Hyperion recordings, and from their polyphonic Renaissance-era choral recordings in particular. The two choirs are separated, not completely, into two stereo channels, and the recording is exceptionally transparent, so that the middle voices can be fairly easily singled out. I'm guessing the higher voices in the left channel represent the plain chant, while the accompaniment of the first choir is in the right channel. Now, plain chant, another way we know this is Gregorian chant, so these would be traditional chants that the composition is built around. It's hard to say, but the entire sound field is sumptuously used. It's a gorgeous opening track. Track two is the uh, chant Pater Noster. It's sung in unison with a good halo of reverb around the voices, as though we're in a big space. Uh, this is really appropriate for this kind of music, so we get an ideal sound on this recording. It sounds like what monks would sound like in a large church. Remember this theme, well, it's not so easy to remember, but remember it for the following Mass, or maybe it is, though, because we're going to hear it enough times. Um, the plain chant that we hear in track two serves as the basis of the Mass. Okay, tracks three through eight are the Misa Pater Noster, not the entire thing, just the Kyrie and Gloria. We'll hear the rest later. It's broken up for reasons I will explain when we get there. Misa Pater Noster for five voices and six voices. This was Dosser's last ever mass setting. 
The Kyrie, Gloria, and Sanctus are based on the Pater Noster melody heard in track two. Pater Noster is Latin for Our Father. This is the prayer that Jesus taught Christians to say. The first um, section is the Kyrie, and this is separated into three tracks. The entire prayer is Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, which is Greek for Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And it's separated into three very long iterations of those phrases. So for the first Kyrie, you'll notice that this sounds like the uh, previous chanted track. The opening is in unison harmony. Then the voices separate for the repetition of Kyrie eleison with some intoxicating harmonies at the opening. The rich lower voices are mostly in the right channel, while the countertenor is on the left. You imagine they're just spread out from low voice to high voice in front of you. Uh, these really are fantastic singers. The third Kyrie Eleison is once again sung in unison, and it's the um, fourth track here, the Christe Eleison, for five voices and three voices. Notice the uh, third Christe Eleison is scored as equales for several voices in the same register. This is a really interesting effect. And this is the first time I've ever heard this done, really, on a Renaissance recording. This starts out in full harmony, with the middle voices getting a lot of the more florid melodic material. The lower voices are mobile, while the countertenor soars in accompaniment. The second Christe is sung in unison, and the equality part starts at a minute and 35 seconds, and we really have to hear this. It's voices singing harmony, but they're all sort of in the same register, so there isn't a soprano or a countertenor and a tenor and a bass. There's like, for example, a tenor and a countertenor, just the, or three countertenors or whatever combination it happens to be. Let's listen to this because this is a pretty interesting sound, I thought. You're hearing uh, yeah, three countertenors there just entwining with no bass to anchor the sound. I really like the effect. It was a little startling when I first heard mm. it. Pretty interesting. Okay, so the second Kyrie is in unison harmony, as with the opening Kyrie, and the middle blooms into full polyphonic harmony. Then the entire section closes in unison. This is a very symmetrical presentation of the three verses of the Kyrie. We then go to the Gloria. These are all from the ordinary of the Mass, meaning these are prayers that would be um, said every week for every Mass. This is divided into three tracks. We start with the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, which is the first um, line of text we hear. And it's a declamation. And then the Et Intera starts tranquilly and continues that way with smooth, vibratoless, and very smooth delivery of the polyphonic melodic lines. There's a purity and richness to the entire texture. A lot of the interest here is in the lower voices in the right channel. The recording has the tenor voice toward the middle, slightly to the left. Beautiful spatial evocation on the recording. This particular section glows. The seventh track is we get to the Domine Deus Agnus Dei line in the Gloria. And this is composed as 
equales again for several voices in the same register. Notice how the contratenor, or the countertenor, sorry, tenor and bass voices appear in descending order of vocal range. This was a striking effect as well, as if to uh, depict the booklet notes say, a musical bow to the audience. I loved the effect, and I want to play it for you. that opening effect. Okay, we go to track eight, Qui Tolis Peccata Mundi Sushipe, Who Takes Away the Sins of the World section. This has full, rich block chord harmony at the beginning, but the voices separate and get more melismatic afterwards. Mel melisma, to remind you, is singing uh, many notes on the same syllable. I'm still marveling at the clarity of sound at this point. The text is discernible amid the moving voices, but I'm wondering if that's because of the exceptionally spacious and transparent recording. This was an ideal of the time. You wanted to be able to hear the text because that carried the message of our uh, salvation. Track nine, we interrupt the mass to hear the Ave Maria chant. Hail Mary, Ave Maria. This is introduced seeing a chant that will be used along with the Pater Noster plain chant in the upcoming credo. So they're kind of preloading it in our uh, minds here by having us hear it as a plain chant. I like the way the ensemble insert this as a musical guide to the composition. Okay, so we go back to the Misa Pater Noster in tracks 10 through 18. We're now at the credo, which uh, lasts from track 10 to track 14. And this combines the Pater Noster with the Ave Maria chant from track 9 that we just heard. The first thing we hear is the Credo and Unum Deum, and we also hear the Pater Noster prayer and the Ave Maria prayer, all sort of sung in different voices at the same time. So this opens with some pretty complex interweaving harmony. This is very thickly scored, different than what we've heard so far. I think the complexity is from having three texts sung at the same time. They're a bit hard to pull out, but that's due to the composition. I believe the extra voices are all heard on these tracks, Let's hear a sample of this. Okay, I can hear that the Ave Maria is being sung all the way in the right channel. And uh, you, can, you can probably pull out the words Pater Noster and Ave Maria from those. Track 11, Et Incarnatus Est. The booklet is helpful in assigning certain texts to certain voices. So the tenor is singing the Pater Noster, and the second contratenor is singing the Hail Mary text here. Track 12, Crucifixus, for three voices, composed as Equales Again. It's got a nice sound, and I'm guessing we're hearing the two Cinquecento tenors 
and guest tenor Tomas Leitkeb here. This is another one of um, Dazer's Equales arrangements. Let's listen to this. So those are all the tenor voices together on the album. I really like that sound. Track 13, Et Ascendit in Shellum, three voices. Again, composed as equales. It's odd that the Ascendit in Shellum is sung by the lowest voices in the ensemble because it's saying that he ascended into heaven and we're hearing the lowest voices <laughs> sing it instead of the opposite of what you would expect. I'm guessing we're hearing two basses and one baritone here. So the baritone and bass in Cinquecento and guest bass Joel Fredrickson is on this track. Track 14, in Et in Spiritum Sanctum, we go back to the complex three-text texture with the second countertenor singing the Pater Noster and the tenor singing Ave Maria. It's been said that singing your prayers is like praying twice. You get a whole week's worth of prayers in this performance, so if, you, if you're <laughs> participating. All right, track 15, we go to the Sanctus. This is a different section of the Mass now. Five voices. The five Cinquecento vocalists are heard here, with the bass leading in the introduction of the text. Entries seem to move up the vocal range. This ends inconclusively, leading into the Benedictus, which is tracks 16 through 17, for four voices. It's sung more quietly, accepting the fact that the section has a thinner harmony with four voices. The composition creates a kind of circling effect with the text. Track 17, the Osana, Osana in Excelsis, is livelier, with a rhythm that dances a bit, it starts in block harmony with polyphonic lines following. The slight bounce to the rhythm remains throughout. Track 18, the Agnus Dei, the last part of the Mass, and we also hear the Pater Noster prayer as well. Six voices. This starts in block harmony. If you can hear the countertenor and tenor, they're singing the Pater Noster text. Listen for the words Pater Noster. The, uh, the plosive pa can help you identify that. The text gradually extends into polyphonic singing. The tenor especially is given a compositional space in order for his paternoster singing to be discernible through the texture. All right, we get some new compositions now. Tracks 19 through 20. Ad te levavi oculos meos. I lift my eyes to you. This is a setting of Psalm 122, and it dates from Dasser's early Munich period before 1550. It's composed in Franco-Flemish style. It's got an imitative opening and is composed in two parts, separated for easy reference into two tracks. We can hear a musical texture that allows the clear declamation of the text and chordal rather than polyphonic writing, as well as Dazer's characteristic use of voice pairs. Track 19, Ate Levavi Oculos Meos. The composition is very transparent with four voices, and I love the imitative opening, so let's hear that. Listen to the imitation in the voices here.
Oh, we don't quite get the uh, <laughs> pause that I thought we were going to get there. Yeah, the, the composition just keeps going. All right. Track 20, which is the same work, Ante Levavi, this is the Miserere Nostri Domine section, has an imitative opening like the previous section. The two sections are divided by a brief silence. There's a point just before the first minute where the voices are reduced to just the bass, then builds back up. It's a striking moment. Track 21, Dilexi Quoniam, for eight voices, is a setting of Psalm 114. It follows the same compositional model as Fracta Diuturnus, which we'll hear later, by underlaying one note per syllable within a large-scale chordal texture to aid clarity of text declamation. This is, by the way, from the uh, Hyperion booklet. It was written during Dasser's later years in Stuttgart, so this is a later work. The volume gets pretty hot at times in this track with the swelling voices. We're hearing eight of them here. The dynamic ebbs and flows from a mezzo forte to fortissimo, with the chordal texture remaining throughout. It's not a chorale, though. The voices scatter a little, but they're always pretty close together, vertically speaking. The sound is thick and powerful, with some powerful swells. Track 22, Dank Sagen wir alle. This is a German language work in five voices. It's a Protestant chorale setting, and for these, Dasa preferred melodies from hymnals of regional origin. The motet is in Mixolydian mode, for those of you modal fans out there. The five vocal parts have a chord texture with the plain chant line in the second tenor. By the way, my ear isn't that good. I've read that it's in Mixolydian mode. I don't want anybody <laughs> saying, wow, this guy's amazing. I don't know my modes by ear that well. This almost sounds folk-like or like a popular sound of the day after all of the Latin texts. It's pretty simple in melody, though the harmony is complex enough. The work comes across as earnest and solemn. Tracks 23 through 24, Daran Gedenk Jakob und Israel is a Protestant chorale setting uh, separated into two tracks. The upper voice is clearly emphasized, unusual for the time, with chordal writing below it, which runs in voice pairs for several stretches. The text refers to Isaiah 44, but is as freely invented as the musical material. Track 23, the beginning features the entire ensemble singing in harmony with the bass voices staggered ahead of the higher voices. The voice pair stretches in lower accompaniment are fairly momentary, and I do like the ebb and flow of the thickness of the texture in this work. Track 24 is the conclusion of this work, Jauchset ihr Himmel. It starts loudly and positively on the word Jauchset, which means rejoice, and winds down in volume as the first minute goes on. The texture is being lightened and thickened as the work goes on. Very pleasing to the ear. Track 25. <laughs> a lot of tracks on this album. Uh, Salva me fac. Uh, six voices. A setting of Psalm 68, verse 2, in imitation style, also in Mixolydian mode. It's got a high tessitura and starts pleadingly with only two voices, countertenor and baritone, with the rest coming in shortly afterwards. There are a lot of segments with voice pairs that gradually build up. Track 26, Fracta Deuternus, for seven voices, features simple block-like chord writing, in keeping with the Lutheran ideal of clearly proclaiming the biblical text. It has a slow introduction in an even meter, and a fast final section in an odd meter, in the manner of a stretta, which means like squeezing or tightening, building up uh, tension. Starts in simple chordal form. There's a lot of force given by the massed voices to consonants, making the text easy to follow. 
Track 27, Fratres Sobri Estote for eight voices. This is from Dazer's Stuttgart period. Unusually, the text is from the New Testament. It's 1 Peter 5, verses 8 to 9. This shares the same style as the previous track, slow intro, and a triple meter in the fast final section. This, however, is composed in the Venetian double choir style, according to the booklet. The music progresses in chords, and the two basses lead as foundation voices. There's no theme. Instead, the word sobri and its characteristic dotted rhythm appear as the central motif of the composition. We can hear the two choirs in each channel overlapping a bit in the middle. You can hear the dotted rhythm that guides the ear in the sample I'm about to play. So let's listen to this, and this dotted rhythm is going to be the uh, theme in this case. That's the dotted rhythm that's holding the um, piece together. Tracks 28 through 32, which is the last piece on the album. Criste qui lux es en dies, four voices in alternatum. This is from Dazer's early Munich period. It's based on the plain song hymn for Compline, which are the evening prayers that monks would say before bedtime in a monastery. Performed here with a cantus firmus in the tenor part, which is traditional. All of the voices imitate the plain song opening. This form of plain song setting clearly refers to the mass and motet writing of Dazer's composition teacher, Senfel. In this performance, the singers of Cinquecento have decided to perform this work in alternatum, which means alternating between verses from the original plain chant and those of the polyphonic motet named after it. So track 28, Christe Lux, Key Lux, S and Dies, we hear the plain song opening. Track 29 is for the chorus in polyphonic writing. So we'll hear plain song alternating with polyphonic writing in the individual sections. Track 30 is plain song. Track 31, a slowly unwinding and rather low dynamic polyphony. The quality is relaxed and confident. And we end on track 32 on the verse Deo Patris Sit Gloria as with a plain chant sung by a single voice. It's a solemn ending to a really spectacular album. You couldn't really ask for better performances or recordings of these pieces. This uh, album gives both. And I'd like to give a shout out to the engineer Marcus Wallner for capturing such a spacious, perfectly positioned and balanced sound. This will probably be an award winner next year. The recording is stunningly clear and will probably make your stereo sound like it's a few levels up in quality than what you thought. The recording is really that good. The voices are all crystal clear, and the singing is, I believe, of the highest possible quality, and we would expect that from Cinquecento. They come across as five solo singers blending together, yet each of them has a distinctive sound that makes them relatively easy to pick out of the five voice settings. For the six to eight voice settings, the guest singers are added, and they also sound distinctive and bring power to the settings. Dazer's settings themselves are inventive and have many moments of disappearing and reappearing voices that thicken and thin out the harmony by turns. Um, he's got a few tricks to keep the ear engaged 
those dasser. This really is an album of riches, and not just compositional ones. The performances are all fantastic. Highest praise goes to this album. Yeah, this is a really good one. It kept me engaged right through. And I just love Renaissance vocals in general. I really liked having the countertenors on the left, and then you've got the lower voices and the bass on the right. It allows you to clearly follow all the parts throughout the program. A wonderful phrasing and balance. I love all the passing tones and tensions and resolutions that come through with the intersecting lines. Once you get into the mass deeply, it is a bit of one character. You may want to separate it into a couple listenings just so that you don't get distracted and you can focus on all of the wonderful lines that are in there. But I really enjoyed this one. And as you say, a stellar sounding recording as well. Yeah, it really is a bit odd to listen to an entire mass as just the music because you wouldn't hear it like that in church. It would be separated into the parts of the mass where this music comes up. But you'd have that one theme throughout the whole mass. But anyway, that's what we do today, so there it goes. Okay, our second classical album is called Kammer Concert, Music of Arnold Schoenberg. No, no, stay away from that dial. This is going to be great, I promise. Okay, whenever I say the word, the name Schoenberg, people just jump up in panic, but uh, don't do that, because this is a pretty interesting album. We'll help you out with this one, don't worry. The pianist is Pina Napolitano, and Ida Aldrian is the mezzo-soprano, and Christoph Filler on baritone, well, he is the baritone. This is performed by the Wiener Concertverein, conducted by Michael Zlabinger, and it's on Odradeck Records, one of our favorite labels. Kinda, yes. They've got a lot of good jazz on this label, too. They're kind of mm. going the ECM route, going for classical and jazz both. I really like that. So I want to kind of encourage them to do more classical recordings of this sort. This is a pretty adventurous album. Uh, For Schoenberg and his pupils, transcription and arrangement was integral to the performance and dissemination of new works. And this recording takes him at his word because it presents all but the Chamber Symphony No. 1 as arrangements. Now let's understand that. Schoenberg came up with this completely new kind of music. (laughs) No one wanted to play it. Well, people did (laughs) want to play it, but he couldn't get any, I guess, professional orchestras to play it or couldn't get the forces together that he needed. So he would um, provide arrangements for a lot of his work so that they could be heard, and they were played at special concerts. I'll uh, explain a little bit about this in a moment. Sometimes simple economics dictated that larger-scale works had to be performed in reduced orchestrations or piano reductions. And uh, he wanted his music heard, so he made sure it was heard in any um, form necessary. In that way, he's a little bit like, dare I say, Johann Sebastian Bach, whose music seems to work on any combination of instruments. It's really Hmm. odd. So he's got that connection anyway. The first work we hear on this is the Piano Concerto, which is a fairly late work for him. It's his Opus 42, composed in 1942, and here it's arranged for 15 solo instruments by H. Collins Rice. Okay, so the Piano Concerto is a 12-tone piece. It's the only one on this album that we're going to hear. We're going to hear three different periods of Schoenberg's uh, compositions, which is pretty interesting. So you get to hear his whole career in microcosm here, starting with the 12-tone work. It's Schoenberg's most extensive work for the piano, because all of his solo piano works are very, very short. They're one or two minutes long. It works as a musical narrative, and the pianist says it has a narrative immediacy and incredible variety of contrasting colors, which I agree with. The pianist being, being a Napolitano. A Bachian, his Bach again popping up, a Bachian texture containing a late romantic spirit 
written as a classic concerto in four movements that are performed as one continuous movement, classical in form, but dodecaphonic in language. Now, this mm. is important. This is one of the ways that Schoenberg got people to listen to his music. The dodecaphonic language is really challenging for people and still is today. But he'd put you know, the larger kind of music in a classical form so that they would, there would be something familiar right. for them to hold on to. It's a really clever thing to do. Alban Berg did this as well. It's got a waltz at the beginning, and the waltz gestures recall Vienna, but in the original orchestration, anyway, a bright and grandiose symphonic orchestration suggests Schoenberg's move to Hollywood because he ended his life there. He didn't write film music, though, unlike his uh, Viennese uh, fellow composer, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who became one of the great composers for the cinema in that era. It's right to say that this uh, work works as a summation of Schoenberg's compositional history. Napolitano, the pianist, wanted to make this great mass of sound move in Viennese fashion and decided to ask Hugh Collins Rice, a composer and Schoenberg expert, for a reduction. He went for the camera symphony, heard last on this album, ensemble of 15 solo instruments, to take Schoenberg out of Hollywood and put him back in Vienna. The transcription was made at the request of the pianist, Pino Napolitano, it's designed to foster a more intimate chamber music-like relationship between the piano and ensemble. The ensemble is almost the same as the Chamber Symphony Number no. 1, the only difference being a missing contrabassoon, which is what makes the Chamber <laughs> Symphony so great. But we'll get to that at the end. The Piano Concerto is a 12-tone work, but it's one of Schoenberg's most melodic examples of the 12-tone method. I think, before we start this, I want to sort of compare the full orchestral version to this version now, the full orchestra version is a gigantic orchestra, but Schoenberg and his uh, school never used, or rarely used, the entire orchestra all at the same time. They sort of separated it into smaller groups, so they had loads of color at their disposal. It was sort of like a gentle strokes that they would use. They would never like, splash all this sound all over the place, like some people do with uh, giant orchestras like Mahler, for example, or Sibelius. I want to play an earlier recording of this for the full orchestra. This is um, Pierre Boulez conducting the Cleveland Orchestra, and it's Mitsuko Uchida at the piano. So this is not the recording that we're talking about now, but I just want the comparison. This is the second section uh, labeled Molto Allegro. This is in Uchida's playing for the full orchestra conducted by Pierre Boulez. Let's listen. Okay, now in the new version, we're going to lose some of those colors. So let's just compare what we just heard to the uh, the version under discussion right now. This is the uh, Pina Napolitano and uh, Michael Zlabinger version.
we we're missing all those percussion instruments like that. Uh, I guess it was a xylophone and things like that. But we do get all the strings, and um, we don't really lose the character of the work. It just sounds a little bit uh, thinner. Like, it's, you know, it's gone on a diet or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's lost some weight. That might not have been the best uh, introduction to the work. It does have a spectacular low sound on the bass, I have to say, in that. Now, the opening movement is an andante, and I want to sample the opening of this because it represents the 12-note series as a clear waltz-like melody. So it's kind of like a weird <laughs> waltz. <laughs> you can clearly hear the waltz rhythm, and then you hear all these, these notes that don't seem to fit into any harmony, and they don't really because it's a 12-tone uh, note row. The waltz and gentleness of the playing kind of makes the clashing of the 12-note row take a back seat, or at least a side seat. And the thinned-out orchestration gives a bit of an earlier feel to the work. It has a sort of old-world elegance here. And I found Napolitano's playing to be gentle and amiable. Can you believe it? In a Schoenberg work. Let's listen to the opening. Notice the waltz rhythm. Now, nothing's going to resolve in this, so I'm just going to have to end it there. <laughs> um, one of the things that 12-note music, and really um, Schoenberg's atonal music does, is it sort of sets up a way to uh, for the music to um, just continue without, you know, it's, it's very episodic, really. And one section just sort of melts into the next without you even noticing it. It just sort of, things are kind of fragmentary, really. Mm. <laughs> it would take a lot of unpacking to really explain that. But... I found uh, Pina Napolitano's playing to be uh, really enjoyable here. Her phrasing helps one follow the sort of narrative quality throughout. This is a top-notch recording, by the way, with the piano sounding fully in the space, not too close, and the single instruments of the ensemble all having good presence on the recording. At the three-minute mark, we have repeating pairs of notes, and they sound like what we'd call chords, but in this context, I'm reluctant to use that word. I want to play that section too. I will say that the use of all 12 notes really brings in some pretty spectacular note combinations, especially in the last minute of this movement or section or track. Anyway, let's uh, hear this section. works you sort of get the idea or the feeling of someone's thoughts just kind of coming up and changing and sort of like that it's a real modernist kind of work books used to do this too they used to try to um follow a character's thoughts think of ulysses the, the famous last chapter of ulysses for example this music sort of does something like that as well 
The second movement, Molto Allegro, uh, has that uh, low bass at the opening, which I really enjoyed. Schoenberg uses a lot of repeating chords, again in, per, in quotation marks here, and I wonder how this fits into his system. It's something familiar to grab onto, however, as is the rhythm and form. Again, I love the entire balance of the piano and ensemble here. The engineer has done a great job in capturing this, as has the ensemble in balancing it. Uh, we hear the piano play the 12-note row in a straight, uninterrupted line in the last 30 seconds of this uh, section, followed by a Messian-like chirping set of high combinations. Messian, of course, came after Schoenberg, though. So, Third uh, movement is the Adagio. Uh, this starts with an ostinato in the cello, very uncomplicated. The winds come in with a dodecaphonic material. It's actually pretty cool to hear this in this light texture with one instrument per part. The lines are easy to follow due to their timbre, as in a multi-instrumental polyphonic work, like we just heard from the Dazer. Mm. The piano comes in with a gentle but discordant line in the first minute, sounding very much part of the ensemble here. At the 1 minute and 50 second mark, I like the characterization of the two-chord creeping figure. It sounds lightly hammy, like a face mugging for the camera. <laughs> Let's hear that. keeps going. The piano gets what I'd guess is a cadenza in this movement from uh, about the three minute mark. There's a Hollywood quality to the instruments after the three minute and thirty second mark in a brief section that couldn't be eliminated by the pared down <laughs> arrangement. The movement has a kind of aimless wandering quality in the fourth minute and I love the bass and low bassoon sounds at the beginning of the fifth minute. It's, it's not a contrabassoon, that's a regular bassoon I think. Uh, this work is so episodic, by the way, that I'm just tempted to sample so much of it. You're going to have to go and listen to this on your own. The piano gets another solo section in the sixth minute, consisting of harmonized trills between the two hands. Rather cautious conversational lines between the piano and ensemble follow, with the piano getting most of the say. The fourth movement, or fourth section, Giocoso. Uh, the tempo doesn't change much from the beginning of this section, and the piece remains rather quiet and emphatically rhythmic. The dynamic builds up to a climax, followed by a pause. Then a violin makes a high proclamation on some sustained notes, and an aggressive rhythm drives the chaotic series of notes to the end. There's even a slightly Hollywood flavor to the chords we hear in the last 15 seconds. Let's hear the end of this work. Bit of a Hollywood ending there, I think. Tracks 5 through 8 is a different piece. This is the Four Orchestral Songs, Opus 22, written 1913 to 1916, first performed in 1932, and here arranged for flute, clarinet, violin, cello, and piano by F. Griesler 
Schoenberg's pupil and son-in-law. It's always nice when you have your son-in-law arranged <laughs> your works for you, huh? These works transition as they go, as was common in Schoenberg's works, these four songs. The first is romantic, and the Rilke leader, the three Rilke leader that follow that, are more rarefied and fragmentary, suggesting a solitary search, both compositional and spiritual. Uh, this work gets overlooked a lot. All four texts have a visionary quality, reflective of Schoenberg's musical and other preoccupations. The vocal part is conceived as a melodic line, around which the other parts comment, which sort of happens also in the piano concerto. The work was written for a huge orchestra, and that's a reason why this piece is not often performed, but it's used in soloistic combinations. The first movement, track five, is called Serafita. This is uh, the name of a famous uh, novel, a French novel of the era, but it's not about that really. It sets a text by the English decadent poet Ernest Dowson in a translation by Stefan George, so it's um, in German. Uh, it's atonal, not 12-tone. But you can kind of hear the 12-tone method coming from the way Schoenberg uses atonality. Uh, you can hardly tell the difference, right? It's got an intriguing clarinet opening and some loudly played piano patterns and chords that are far enough back that the fortes don't take your head off. The baritone comes in with smooth tone and clear pronunciation of the German text. He's recorded up close. Schoenberg's accompaniment seems unrelated to the vocal line, but it's actually commenting on its tone and the emotion of the text. You don't want to stop listening in case you'll miss something, because every line is so compact and is never heard again. It all just goes by. Excellent performance by Christoph Filler, the baritone. The text expresses a wish for a visionary face to avoid the vocalist until the last moment to give him confidence just before his death. Second movement. Alle welke dich suchen, and this is on uh, a poem by Rainer Maria Rilke, a poet I really love, and I'm always happy to rehear these. Alle wachte dich suchen, all those who seek you, is what it means. Here the accompaniment is very fragmentary, as the baritone voice continues through the uh, line. Again, the accompaniment wraps around the vocalist as though he's wandering through some strange forest and they're his surroundings. They don't sound related to him. The sounds are intriguing, as is appropriate for this text about a wish to perceive the divine. Let's uh, sample this one. I really love that clarinet sound in there, too. The way the orchestration is so spare, I feel like this is music that would really suit our time well if people would take the time to listen to it, because we are sort of alienated from our surroundings even more now than ever before because of um, smartphones and the internet yeah. and things like that. The third movement, Mach mich zum Wachter deine Weiten, make me the watchman of your vast expanses. Uh, okay, that could have a lot of meanings, really, couldn't it? This starts with some droopy violin lines in harmony and very fragmentary accompaniment in general. Only the vocalist has continually legato vocalized lines in a romantic mode. 
If you know what Pierre Lunaire's accompaniment sounds like, the accompaniment here works in much the same way, commenting on the vocal line. There are some pretty interesting and unique elements, and again, you have to catch them when you hear them, because they don't repeat. The text is a plea to the divine to give the singer the privilege of searching for him. This comes across musically as a bit disturbing and unsteady. Yeah, Schoenberg really doesn't do happy and, and <laughs> serene, does he? Again, excellent vocalizing by the baritone Christoph Filler. I really love all the breathy winds peeking out of the texture, and especially the clarinet honk right at the very end. I want to say, whenever Schoenberg sets like spiritual texts, like um, the string quartet, the second string quartet at the end, which we'll hear, by the way, in a few weeks, he doesn't set them as serene like visions. He sets them more as kind of otherworldly and strange. And I suppose that's a, an interesting uh, way of perceiving it. It really mm. wouldn't be like our everyday lives after all. So his vision of them is pretty interesting to me. The fourth um, section of this, Furgefühl, which means presentiment. That's an intuitive feeling about the future, usually a foreboding one. Now, this starts off with similar breathy winds to the end of the last track, and I like a good breathy wind, so let's uh, hear the um, opening of this track. hundred years later, you're just not in Kansas anymore when you're listening to Schoenberg's music. <laughs> the singer expresses how he is one with the elements in the song, and the winds do tend to hug the vocal line on all sides when heard on this one. But they separate just as the text, he suddenly falls back in himself and is alone in the great storm. We go to track nine, a new piece, Song of the Wood Dove from Gurulida, Opus 57A, 1922, arranged for 15 instruments, harmonium, and piano by Schoenberg himself for a concert he conducted in Copenhagen in 1923 as a companion piece to the Chamber Symphony, which we'll hear next. It uses the same ensemble, but the piano and harmonium are added. It's romantically colored, and here we're hearing Ida Aldrian, the mezzo-soprano, this song concludes part one of Gurulida, which tells of the doomed love between King Valdemar and Tove. In this song, the wood dove tells of Tove's death. And this starts with a moody turn. There's a lot of death in German music, isn't there? This starts with a moody turn, followed by an odd chirping of bird effect in the winds. To my ears, this vaguely recalls Wagner, though Schoenberg was more of a Brahms devotee. It comes across like a dramatic scene in an opera. Again, we get a sense of the fragmentary nature of the lines in the ensemble, providing comment on the mezzo-soprano's long, smooth legato lines. Schoenberg has a great sense of orchestral color, and that's retained to an extent here. The original is similar in breadth, but has more access to orchestral color. The piece comes across with a minor mode feel appropriate for its subject. Ida Aldrian delivers her lines with power when required, but has that shaded, sensitive tone through most of the work that's appropriate to a death announcement in music. And death announcements in music go all the way back to the first opera, or the first successful opera, Monteverdi's Orfeo. 
Uh, she manages a variety of emotions well with her phrasing and dynamic use. Let's hear her. Um, this is the only track uh, that she appears on, and I definitely want to give her a bit of a exposure. Okay, very uh, romantic sounding and uh, tonal. I love the tragic sounding growl in the final chord of the work, too. All right, one of my favorite works, actually, is next. It's very intellectual, though. Track 10, Chamber Symphony No. 1 in E Major for 15 Solo Instruments, Opus 9, from 1906. This is the only work on the album that we're hearing in its original orchestration. This has a narrative power combined with tightly intricate motivic polyphony. I'm reading from the booklet notes now. It recalls the concerto in both composition and because this work is originally for 15 instruments, it matches the concerto's arrangement on this album. The ensemble consists of five string players and ten wind players, including three clarinetists and two horns. Schoenberg believed that the use of solo instruments had the effect of making the thematic and motivic fabric more readily recognizable. Like the piano concerto, this is effectively a multi-movement work in a single span. The multiplicity of details, the level of concentration, and the strong colors, and the strong colors are what really drew me, evoked the pictures Kandinsky was to paint in the years just before the First World War. You might want to take a look at those on the internet. Um, paintings by Kandinsky. So the atonality is heard right away in this work, followed by a resolve and a pause. Let's uh, hear the beginning of this work. go galloping off. Now, I said atonality, and then I heard like this immediate <laughs> you know, cadence right at the beginning, which would indicate that the work is tonal. I think it's got a lot of maybe chromaticism is what I wanted to mm -hmm. say there. As is Schoenberg's way, this is a 20-minute work, and no time is wasted restating anything. We're immediately off to a new urgent section, as you heard. There's a real confusion of melodic voices in this work, coming across as highly intellectual in the sense of the listener having to sort them all out, as well as putting across strong emotion. The clear recording helps a lot with this, and again, a nod toward the engineer, who I should say his name at this point, Christoph's Ousters. It's a good work in the studio there. We should also mention producer John Clement Anderson. There's almost a cheerful bit of music in the third minute, but it drifts into complication and urgency shortly afterward. This really is a hard piece to give a play-by-play -play on, just like the piano concerto. There's so much detail and such quicksilver composing in its sections. The work is in four sections without a break. It's hard to say when one section begins and the other ends. The material 
changes moods so quickly. I guess five minutes and we kind of switch into a pretty uh, lively scherzo because we're still hearing a lively tempo nine minutes into the piece. There's been an overwhelming amount of episodic detail up to that point. At 10 minutes and 25 seconds is a cool harmonic upward moving line that quiets the music down. And I guess that's around here that the third more adagio section begins. Let's hear a, a sample of that part. So we suddenly go from that really explosive uh, rhythm into something a lot slower, like a slamming on the brakes. The music becomes still with sustained chords, inviting us to focus on the timbral combinations used. In the 14th minute, the individual strands start to separate from the massed sustained sounds. In the 16th minute, we're hearing a lively bouncing rhythm in the bass while the upper strands conflict. I have to say, I never know what to think in pieces like this because you get a sense of being lost. Where is the music going? Only the composer knows if it's going anywhere at all. The last minute does have a sense of an approach to an ending, and we do get a final sounding chord. Let's just hear the very end of the work. Well, it's not quite a full resolve, but it's it sounds like the end. Now, like the first string quartet, I've always liked the impact this piece made on me, even though I can't keep all of its details in my head. It certainly invites repeated listenings, and I've been hearing it for almost 40 years now. I guess that's a reason for living, trying to figure out the art you love and make it yours. I'm still doing that with the late Beethoven uh, string quartets, too, and a few of these Schoenberg works as well. So we get a work from each of Schoenberg's main creative periods, tonal, atonal, and serial. We start with the hardest, the serial, which is nevertheless pleasant enough in the piano concerto, due to the dynamics, touch of the pianist Pina Napolitano, and arrangement of the tone row. I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed this album. It's beautifully performed and interpreted. I don't think I've ever heard a bad performance of Schoenberg's music, even though it's so difficult. Musicians seem to take a lot of time and care to put them together, and that sounds like the case here. Also, the recording is excellent with just enough room sound on the recordings to make them feel like they're happening in a live space. So uh, be adventurous and give this a listen, I would say. And back in my music school days, I remember expressing my displeasure for <laughs> Schoenberg's 12-tone technique, and one of my professors said to me, that's just because your ears aren't developed enough to hear those sequences and understand them. And I've I was heard people say that to me too. Thoroughly oh, so insulted. And yeah. so 
<laughs> I went and got some transcriptions and I sat down at the piano and played through some parts until I could make sure that I, you know, knew what was going on and kind of right. got them in my head. And I have to say that I didn't really like them anymore <laughs> after doing that at that time. But, you know, that was uh, when I was a much younger person. And you know, as I've gotten older, now I can appreciate some different things more. If anything, it makes me think about how the Western tradition of harmony developed and how we got to where we are today and many diversions from that, you know, as well. Where are we today? Although we're yeah. in some, you know, we're mostly in a, I think we've kind of moved to... Um, kind of come back. Yeah, at least in the music that I like, I think we're in a kind of the sound, the timbre is the most important right. thing now. Anyway, it makes you think about, you know, the systems and rules of music. And then mm. if someone comes along with new rules, uh, how will you adjust to those? But I can listen to these in a little different manner and find other things to appreciate, even if I'm not a big fan of that approach. So the piano concerto, yeah, is pretty amazing how musical Napolitano can make it. Mm. Her phrasing and the kind of care of touch actually you know, it makes it quite appealing, and I almost forget that I'm listening to uh, you know this kind of 12-tone system. In the other works, too, even in the atonal, you get drawn into the different combinations of tones, and that's what's really most interesting to me about that is, uh, you know, he makes it attractively packaged, as you say, in a form that the ear is used to listening to as far as structure, so you're more able to accept the dissonances and interesting combinations, and sometimes they are actually quite interesting. The Chamber Symphony is kind of exciting, but as you say, it's hard to unpack because there's a lot going on. He was a guy with a lot of ideas. <laughs> That's what adult music is all about, challenging your ear to uh, hear new things. And, you know, maybe some people, even though this is 100 years old now, uh, some people still will find it <laughs> difficult yeah. to uh, digest. But, yeah, if you can uh, get into it and try to figure out what's going on, you can find some interesting things and maybe appreciate a different kind of uh, musical organization. I sort of think of um, the musical language of, say, classical music, say Mozart and Haydn's time, the forms, the different, you know, Rondo right. and Sonata. People knew what those were. So they would go and they'd have expectations. And then those expectations would be subverted by the harmony or whatever. But the thing is, it's a language. Once we get up to Schoenberg, he has this new thing. And now it's like he's like this, um, you know, tech guy who's using all these tech words that nobody right. understands except for other tech people. Right. You know, so it's his own like special club. And you have to learn that language in order to really like this music. And mm. it never really became too common. The thing is, they tried to really push this on everybody after the Second World War, and that's when it, classical music lost its audience, <laughs> yeah. basically. Exactly. Uh, but um, when Schoenberg does it, I mean, it's his language, and he arrived at it. So, of course, he does it really well. It works right. well for him, but it wasn't going to be the... Uh, you know, the musical language that everybody's going to write no. in. Jeez, can you imagine us all speaking tech? That would be horrible, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, now we've eaten our broccoli and our bitter greens. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's time for some limoncello after dinner. Yeah, don't you? that's what I did. I did this on purpose because <laughs> I knew this was going to be light. Our third classical album is called Postcards from Italy Italian Music for Film. And uh, this is by Marco Albonetti on the soprano sax. And the Roma Sinfonietta, conducted by Paolo Silvestri, who is also the arranger on this album. This is on the Chandos label. So I thought some pleasant uh, melodic Italian film music would be just the thing for dessert here. 
Okay, so the idea of postcards in the title derives from the idea of meetings between the composer and director, for example. It's a constellation of relationships and human affairs. Now, Albanetti, we heard him before on a Piazzolla album um, right. two years ago. It was a long time ago, so I thought we'd check him out here. Albanetti says the music of Nino Rota and Ennio Morricone embody the cultural identity of most Italians. That's a big claim. Um, I, well, I'd like to talk to him more about that. I think the melodies probably do, but I think the melodies wedded to the image maybe do, because they have images in their minds right. from the movies, I think, you know, that relate to them. Anyway, the Roma Sinfonietta is the same orchestra that Ennio Morricone used to record his greatest film scores. Here, Albanetti is recording them in order to achieve the same orchestral sound and colors as the original soundtracks. These arrangements are smaller in scale than the original compositions, their chamber orchestra size, and all arrangements are by the conductor, Paolo Silvestri. The cover art on the album is really attractive, featuring Albanetti, dressed a bit rakishly, playing his sax on a stone stairway with an old Vespa and sidecar on yeah. the left of the photo. It reminded me a bit of the uh, La Serenissima album cover for their album Set the Cento oh, right. yeah. on the Signum label, and I just like those images. We like that album also from 2021, that one. Anyway, let's go through this one. We start with a bunch of Ennio Morricone film scores. Now, when we think of Ennio Morricone, we think of uh, Clint Eastwood, the Sergio Leone films, right? right? But we don't get any of those on this album. This is all later. <laughs> And Yo Morricone, which is too bad because I was waiting to hear like the Soprano Sesco. But we don't get that. We get gorgeous melody all the way through. The first two tracks, uh, these are often grouped into two, the Morricone themes. Gabriel's Oboe and the Falls from The Mission, a movie mm. from 1986 directed by Roland Joffe. Did you see this movie? Jeremy Irons, is it? Maybe. I didn't I see it. So. Yeah, I remember it. I didn't see this one. I do remember it, though. I didn't see it, though. Anyway, this starts with uh, Gabriel's oboe. starts with a piano line that resonates with the pedal down. This is a very live sound and rather close, but comfortable. This never really gets loud. The strings come in with cinematic warmth, and then Albanetti enters on his very lyrical-sounding soprano saxophone, really squeezing out every ounce of melodic juice in the theme. Uh, you can tell he feels this melody deeply, and this will be the case throughout the album. The pacing is on the slow side, but it breathes well and makes a great musical impression. It's a very touching theme. Let's sample that. Beautiful melody and gorgeous shaping of that melody too by Albanetti. There's some uh, soprano sax that 
you know, can have that real kind of nasal quality mm -hmm. to it. And I was impressed throughout this recording. He has a very clarinet-like yeah. rounded tone that's quite beautiful. He even has a, uh, a kind of harmonica or accordion tone at yeah, some points. Yeah. He has a lot of interesting sounds. We'll get to those. I think I sampled a few of those as well. Anyway, the second track is The Falls, and the recording goes into this without a pause. It still features strings heavily, and here the low strings, and piano. Albanetti finally comes in after about a minute, playing in his lower but still highly lyrical range. Uh, he captures the glowing mood exceptionally well. The music in both of these tracks sounds like it's depicting scenery rather than action. A serene, wide-open setting. Uh, the slightly held-back tempo adds tremendously to the peaceful atmosphere and really gives a lot of space for Albanetti to shape the melody. He launches into his high-end via a rapid scale in the third minute. Track three, Morricone playing Love from The Legend of 1900 from 1998, directed by Giuseppe Tornatore, another movie I didn't see, but I did read the book by Alessandro Barico, a very famous Italian writer. Anyway, it starts with a similar orchestration to the mission, but with piano picking out a line while the strings create a warm, harmonic-sustained bed. At 133, Albanetti enters with the theme, so both these pieces have a long setup. He really keeps us waiting for that theme to yeah. come in. He again plays the theme lovingly. Tracks four through five, Morricone, Nostalgia, and Looking for You, the love theme, from Nuovo Cinema Paradiso, a movie I really love, from 1988, yeah. this is. Okay, directed by Giuseppe Tornatore also. By the way, the American version of this movie was uh, about two hours long, and the Italian version was three hours long. Oh. It had a whole subplot in it that they cut out of the American version. Tornatore said that he liked the American version better, but... <laughs> I th I just like to know the characters, so I liked the Italian version because it had this this whole thing about his love affair with his girl there. Anyway, the fourth track, Nostalgia, has uh, Michelangelo Carbonara on the piano, and the piano starts solo with a seemingly improvised line, but it's a theme from the movie, of course. I do like the way Carbonara achieves an in-the-moment feel to his playing. Albanetti joins him at 1 minute and 16 seconds, and then in track 5 we hear Looking For You, the love theme. Gentle piano chords and warm strings are heard. And now I'm using the same adjectives to describe the sound in these pieces, and really that's by design, not because of my limited vocabulary. These arrangements pretty much rely on the same effects to achieve the same moods. That's not a bad thing, as it makes Albanetti's shaping of the themes the main attraction on the album. But listening to this album straight through, since it kind of, it kind of gets kind of samey. He is again deeply heartfelt here, more so than in other orchestra performances I've heard of Morricone's film music. Track six and seven, Morricone, Deborah's theme and the main theme from Once Upon a Time in America from 1984, directed by Sergio Leone. I remember this movie from mm -hmm. college. Track six, Deborah's theme, and this features. Vincenzo Bolognese on the violin. Was there a requirement for people to have like family names of pasta sauces <laughs> to play the solos on this album? We have Vincenzo Bolognese on the violin and Michelangelo Carbonara on the piano. <laughs> anyway, there's a droning string bass and again warm string chords above setting a mood and spelling out the theme before Vincenzo Bolognese comes in on the violin to draw out in romantic feeling of the melody. Track seven, the main theme, features Michelangelo Carbonara 
on the piano, and Carbonara's piano comes in without a pause from the previous movement. Albanetti is again in his lower range, as at the end of the first section, and ends the piece. These names remind me of my old girlfriend, because when we would go out, if I wanted to eat something, I couldn't eat the same thing she, she ate, so I had to order something different. But it didn't matter, because I got to eat most of hers anyway. <laughs> <laughs> she would eat like a quarter of hers, and I'd eat all of mine and three quarters of hers. I, I had to lose weight, so I broke up with her. <laughs> <laughs> Track 8. Joseph Lacaille, I guess, 1859 to 1937, and Ennio Morricone. Now, this is credited to both of them because Morricone used Lacaille's melody in this composition. It's Amapola from Once Upon a Time in America, and I think he wanted this old world sort of uh, feel, so he got this melody. Written in 1920 by Lacaille and then 1984 by Morricone. Let's see. This is uh, the original melodies by Joseph Lacaille, arranged and orchestrated by Ennio Morricone for his film soundtrack, and rearranged and orchestrated by Paolo Silvestri, the conductor and composer as well. There's no information in the CD booklet about Joseph Lacaille, who in the early, is the earlier originator of the melody that Morricone uses for his theme. I'd like to know a bit more of the story about how this uh, came to be. The string orchestration is nice. In the second minute, Albanetti comes in with an almost accordion-like sound on the soprano sax, and I want you to hear that, so let's sample that. Sounds, it's a soprano saxophone. He gets an accordion yeah. sound there. Or you could say a harmonica as well. Hmm. Amazing. The theme, as you heard, has a tango quality to it. I guess just Lacaya is from Argentina. Albanetti trades the melody with the string orchestra for the last verse, and he himself brings the melody to an end. Track nine, the last Morricone piece, the main theme from Malena. <laughs> I haven't even heard of this movie from the year 2000, directed by Giuseppe Tornatore. I've only seen Nuovo Cinema Paradiso by him. The strings introduce this, and we hear a new sound from Albonetti, full in his lower end, but he rises up into his middle range for the main part of the melody. It's a touching theme, dripping with memories. Yeah, we don't get any of the Morricone from the famous uh, Sergio Leone Clint Eastwood westerns here, just his romantic themes from his later films, and they're all lushly orchestrated, uh, for the strings, and with beautiful melodic playing from Albanetti. Track 10, we go to Nino Rota. This is the theme from Amor Chord, which is a Fellini film. There's not much of a pause between the change of composers. The piano plays the theme first here, then the sax comes in with the theme, rather softening the chromatic descent to the last note in the first phrase that makes this theme so Rota-esque and really reminds me of the movie Amar Chord. It really stuck out when it was played there. It's what I remember from the film. Let me just play the beginning of this. Here's the chromatic descent.
know, that theme plays like really throughout the film and kind of mm. really becomes like a, really sticks in your head after a while. Albanetti really can't help but make everything more beautiful, and this comes across with the nostalgia for the past that the theme imparts in the original film. The Roma Sinfonietta, of course, characterizes this music perfectly. The arrangement sounds like it fills out the richness of the harmony in the original film. Tracks 11 through 13, Nino Rota, the Godfather Waltz, reminiscence of Sicilian pastoral, and love theme from The Godfather. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, 1972. This music is so famous; it's just so mm. associated with the mafia and any really, uh, and this film in general. The first theme, The Godfather Waltz, Albanetti plays the opening solo with deep feeling and long pauses between phrases for effect. When the orchestra comes in, it plays some dissonant chords. The first time we've heard a jarring harmony on this recording. A cello comes in at uh, 1:30 and plays the theme. At two minutes and three seconds, pizzicato strings outline the waltz rhythm with fourth notes as the sax comes back in with the melody. The loneliness of the theme is highlighted in this performance, and I like the way Albanoni draws it out with his tone and phrasing. Track 12, Reminiscence of Sicilian Pastoral, starts with the soprano sax in a different register, lower down. He gets a smooth full tone here and starts solo again. Finally, at 1 minute and 13 seconds into this brief track, a sustained chord comes in in the strings with piano punctuation after the sax's phrases. The harmony drifts away at the end. Track 13, the love theme. This is the famous theme that everyone associates with The Godfather. It's played lingeringly by the strings. They play through the entire theme with the sax coming in at 42 seconds to complete a line and take over the main theme when the middle eight is over. I'm going to sample like later into this track, and everybody will be familiar with this theme, of course. He's changing it a little bit there. Again, it sounds a little bit lonely and ominous in the original movie, but he really makes everything far more beautiful mm. when he plays it. It's romanticized here. Anyway, The Godfather. Track 14, uh, Nino Rota, themes from La Dolce Vita. So this is more of a medley. Um, it goes on for about nine minutes. And this comes in strong with the piano seemingly hammering on the emphatic opening theme. By the way, this is themes from La Dolce Vita, Federico Fellini's great film from 1960. At 30 seconds, a new theme starts sounding pentatonic and rather oriental, probably from one of the opening club scenes. Uh, we're going through the themes fast here. There's a new one played by the sax at one minute, very melodic. The piano repeats it with the sax coming in for the end. At a minute and 52 seconds, there's a pause, then a theme with some clashing harmony in the piano chords. The strings play the melody. At 2 minutes and 30 seconds, this builds into a light, circusy theme, with the sax playing some squeaking, playful themes in its very high end. At 3.05, another theme played in the sax mid-range and accompanied by piano. This one's in 3.4. And at 4.22, another gentle theme starts in the strings. 
Here, Albanetti gets his accordion-like tone again. Uh, it's another waltz or perhaps the same one. Material starts repeating in the sixth minute, possibly earlier. There's another new dancing melody at the seven-minute mark, a very familiar one from the film. The string arrangement really is syrupy here. The melody is traded between the strings and the sax, and the Oriental theme from earlier in this arrangement comes back to end the track. So it's kind of structured, this whole thing. like It has sort of a form to it where mm-hmm. there's sort of like a repeat of the A material at the beginning, or at least the sense of that. Track 15, Paolo Silvestri, theme from Controvento. This is the uh, conductor's uh, composition, directed by Peter Del Monte in the year 2000. This is a film I haven't even heard of. This one is by the conductor. It starts with a piano pattern. Again, it's in 3-4. The sax plays the winding melody, and this basically repeats in different combinations in the track's three minutes. Track 16, the final track, Gato Barbieri's famous theme from Last Tango in Paris, 1972, Bernardo Bertolucci's infamous film. (laughs) This starts with a quiet piano solo, seeming to improvise the theme. When the strings come in, they play a bright, stabbing phrase. Then we hear Albanetti play the famous melody on the sax, along to the tango rhythm. Towards the end of the second minute, Albanetti gets to step out a bit and show us his wilder sense in his higher register. I'll give you just one last sample of that. And uh, Albanetti knows his uh, tango from that Piazzolla album, of course. This piece is brought to a quick conclusion after this section. So, if we can think of these works as postcards, they're all from places that Albanetti obviously loves. And I imagine each postcard ends with the line, Wish you were here, because it sounds like he's inviting us through his playing. It's a meltingly beautiful album, one to calm one's nerves and have one think of better, more relaxed times in the way it's performed. The recording absolutely glows, so a shout-out to the engineers Franco Patrignani and Davide Dell'Amore. That said, in listening to all of it, I found it rather samey, because they're all string arrangements with a soprano, and sometimes there's a piano and violin. None of the melodies go for any sort of development, so there's no like intellectual interest in the music which is as it should be for a film score, but they really don't make for good concert music, in my opinion. Audiences love them, though, because the melodies are so familiar. Silvestri's arrangements go for maximum syrup, um, as I do on my (laughs) pancakes. That's where I like the syrup. Anyway, the sweet tone of the strings are beautifully captured on the recording. There's not really much to these pieces beyond the immortal melodies, and that was the intention of the composers, as we know, especially from Nino Rota's um, concert hall works, which are highly melodic but really interesting as well. Your attention is supposed to be on the images in the film, after all, and the music guides your emotions. There's a gentle caress to the way Albanetti plays all of these melodies, The entire album comes across as touching, and that's an emotion that should be felt for a few minutes at maximum. We've heard Albanetti and Piazzolla, and now in these beautiful melodies, I'd like to hear him in something more adventurous next time. I mean, he's got me attention with his beautiful tone and his way of shaping melodies. Let's go for something a little more adventurous. 
I usually try to talk people out of using classical music to go to sleep to at night because there's a lot to pay attention to, but this album is so calming that it would send one off into pleasant dreams at the end of the day, so it could be used for that. The album really doesn't try to rivet one's attention, just to remember days gone by in the cinema. It's heavy on nostalgia. Haters will call it schmaltzy, but there's an audience for this. I'd recommend listening to these as you'd watch the movies one at a time. <laughs> It'll register better that way. I will say, though, I'm not done with this album yet. I'm going to play it the next time a lady friend comes over and see what happens, because I think it could set a mood, if you know what I mean. It's uh, very soft and sweet in nature right through. And as you said, the draw are these famous melodies, which you may have heard in these movies, so they'll be a bit nostalgic. And you have the charm of that wonderful saxophone tone, which we found goes from clarinet to other kind of reedy instruments. And yeah, it achieves its effect, whether you want to listen to it all at once and be put into a romantic, nostalgic haze or not is one thing. Yeah, but it that's certainly a good is, way to say it. Yeah. yeah, it certainly is beautiful. I will say, though, going back into the adult music archives, if you want to hear a jazzier version of Morricone, you can go back mm. and check out something we covered in episode nine. That was called A Fistful of Music. Oh, I have that. Baron, I got to go back to that. Wow, yeah, Morricone and time. more. And that yeah. was Morricone Stories on Warner Classics by the Italian saxophonist Stefano Di Battista. And you will hear some of those uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, I think, was on that one. Right. And uh, some soprano sax, too. And that was a fun recording. Yeah, that was a, those were really good arrangements of those melodies yeah. as well. They're really interesting. Yeah, so Morricone's music certainly is a mine, I think, for doing lots of things. And everyone knows and loves those melodies. As is the case with Rota, too. Anyway, yeah. speaking of jazz, let's finally get there. It's finally jazz time. Is, is, is this podcast over yet? Oh, we're just getting started. <laughs> we're just getting started. Because we got some hot jazz tonight. We're going to be on fire right from the right. get-go here. And that's with an exciting debut recording called Fire Tet. This is a self-release from trumpeter Constantine Alexander. There's a mighty name for you. How do you like that? That's a, yeah, that is. His, his mom must have really loved him. Came out <laughs> on October 18th. Alexander's born and raised in Chicago, the son of Greek immigrants. He graduated from Chicago's Lincoln Park High School, and now he's the jazz trumpet professor at Roosevelt University, where he earned his BA in trumpet performance, and he leads the large jazz ensemble. He got his master's in music and jazz studies at DePaul University, and he performs with Roy McGrath's Majunji, and who we're going to hear on saxophone on this recording, and Marcus Carroll's Trumpet Summit, and he's the trumpeter for the Chicago Blackhawks as well. He's worked and collaborated with Ron Carter, Ernie Watts, Randy Brecker, Brian Lynch, Terrell Stafford, Dennis Mackerel, Paquito de Rivera, and many others. The description says, quote, this is a swinging hard bop tribute to Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers and to the great trumpet king Clifford Brown and his modern-day disciples Nicholas Payton and Sean Jones. That's a bold statement, but I can tell you this recording lives up to that. We've got all original compositions from Alexander, who's on trumpet and flugelhorn here. As I mentioned, Roy McGrath, tenor sax, Julius Tucker on piano, Greg Essig on drums, and Ben Dillinger on bass. We're going to get things started with a tune called The Show. 
and it's an exciting start indeed. There's a 20-measure melody that has fun horn lines that hang out on their own with zippy 16th notes. The rhythm section gets chugging with walking bass, and the final two measures of drum fills go into a repeat of that. Let's check out this tune and how it gets started. That's pretty exciting. The pretty second happy. time around, the ending is a solo break for Alexander to get into his solo, and he makes a big first impression, starting with some cool lines, ending in intervals, and building up with phrases full of ideas. You'll notice that the solos are following a minor 12-bar blues progression. They work in some stop time for his solo, and then let him free for some harmonic exploration over just the drums, and we have to hear some of this. So let's go forward a little bit to hear what that's all about. That's a good sample. Swig it without a net there. That's some hot stuff. Well, McGrath follows with a hard swinging tenor sax solo, and Tucker has an energetic and percussive piano solo with great punchy left-hand chords, feeding his right-hand ideas. The three soloists then trade fours for a few rounds with Essig on drums, including a cheeky shake line from Alexander that's a lot of fun. And once more around the melody with a big final minor chord to seal it up at the end. Track two, IDKY. Said, I don't know why. Could be. Could be. Why? Yeah, maybe. Huh? Yeah. The horn lines pick up into an ambling medium tempo melody. It's 32 measures, A, A, B, A. The A sections have ringing bass intervals underneath the horns, and the drums fill into the B section. That gets a lift and chugs over walking bass. And check out the little trumpet shake in the fifth measure. Dillinger gets a bass solo first with nice melodic ideas and clean articulation. There's a little empty break for Alexander to schmooze in with some more <laughs> fluid lines. It sounds like he's on flugelhorn here with a gently playful solo. McGrath follows keeping the fluid mood but with some speedy licks on the way. And Tucker shows a gentle touch on the piano solo on this one with light dancing figures and a final little tickling phrase into a final run through the melody. There's some fun final phrase repeats with tasty little drum fills from Essig. Track three, Fire. It's a Latin one here. There's a 16 measure intro with rhythmic piano chords. The horn line melody is harmonized and the stack splits off for some fun tag lines. It's AABA 32 measure form with a change up to swing on the B section. Alexander gets a solo first with good agility and some high register reaches. McGrath has a forward drive in his solo on this one reaching a good intensity. Let's check out his playing on this tune. 
Yeah, I love those rhythmic change-ups there. They get another run through the melody as well, and then they vamp out on the intro piano chord idea to give Essig a workout around the drums, adding in backing horns from smooth lines to hits to wrap up the tune. Track four is Waltzing Long. Waltzing Along. This one has a breezy intro with some pretty ringing piano. Then the horns come in with the melody lines. It's a 40 measure melody with two 16 measure sections and then a final eight measure section. They're waltzing smoothly, but work the phrase up to some exciting accents the first time in the section. And then on the second section, Alexander takes it way up high. Let's check it out. McGrath gets a solo from there with a breezy bounce and some speedy double time lines and Alexander has nice phrasing and some acrobatics in his solo on this one with lip trills, some tricky intervals and high squeals. I think we want to hear a little bit of this as well because it's so cool. Fun. <laughs> well, I wish great. we could just play the whole tune from there because there's some fun rhythmic change-ups starting with the switch to 4-4 and then more fun for Tucker's piano solo. Be sure to check out the rhythm section interaction there as well. Uh, they waltz through the melody again with an extended final section to end it. Track 5 is called Frequent Flyer, a hard bop melody with cool horn lines. The rhythm section stopping up underneath is an AABA 32 measure tune with nice harmonization on the B section. Uh, it's kind of got a little nostalgic kind of sound to it. Check out this tune.
Yeah, really nice. A break there into Alexander Solo over a great walking bass from Dillinger. Alexander chains together a lot of creative ideas and some high register licks in this one with a bluesy finish. Tucker follows on piano and digs into some really cool bluesy ideas and chiming right hand notes. And Dillinger gets a standout bass solo with rhythmic snap and great melodic ideas. This is his shining moment on the recording. So let's check this out. That's some digging in there. Well, a clean little break brings back the melody for one more time for a final go around. Trek six, forever and always. Some ringing cymbals bring in this very slow ballad in three, four time. The 16 measure melody has a catchy little interval lick that sticks in your head as it repeats. And then Alexander makes it float gently higher in the second half of the melody. He continues on into a solo that soars up high and gradually builds energy with brushed textures and tom work subdivisions from Essex drums. It chills down for a piano solo from Tucker that starts gently and swells to ringing notes. Uh, let's check out his playing on this tune. Alexander is back for another play through the melody to a high-held note and a gentle cadenza to finish it in a pretty fashion. And the recording ends up with a tune called Dees, D-E-E-Z. Tucker starts this one out solo on piano with ringing bass notes and rubato rippling lines of notes and chords. He's on his own for almost two minutes before bowed bass and light drum textures join with him. 
they get a rhythmic phrase repeating that speeds up with skittering drum from Essig. The horns come in with insistent eight measure lines that end in little kind of salt peanuts like hiccup interval phrases. Uh, there's a pregnant pause and Alexander breaks in with a pickup line to a trumpet solo and things are off swinging furiously over John Coltrane's giant step chord changes. Let's hear him burst in on the final tune right at that point. exciting stuff there. Well, McGrath follows with a hard swinging sax solo, and Tucker has a piano solo full of energy. Essig gets an extended drum solo with some nice development of rhythmic ideas around the drum kit, and some really fast bass drum work, and sounding like he has at least three arms in there sometimes. Piano and bass are back, with the quickening phrase we heard in the intro into the horn lines once more to close out the recording. It's an explosive debut from Alexander. He shows that he has all the goods, Impressive chops, creative ideas, and exciting risky forays into dangerous spots in his solos. Uh, his compositions are intelligent and fun with good variety. We get hard swinging, hard bopping, waltzing, and tender ballad spots too to show off a well-rounded expression. The energy is high throughout this recording with great solos all around from McGrath, Tucker, Essig, and Dillinger. Definitely a trumpet player to watch out for. This album really is... Um... I don't want to say everything, but it's a lot of what you would ask for in a jazz album. It's got great um, themes to you know improvise on and you yeah. know, chord progression. It's got some really hot soloing throughout. I thought the sound was great, too. It was forward and present. It was great clarity on all of the instruments. And I really like these kind of records where you get only like a small number of tracks. There are seven tracks on this album, but they're all full of these great extended solos. So they're kind of yeah. you know longer and there's a lot to listen to. Constantine Alexander was definitely the standout on this album, although everybody was really great uh, soloing. He's got this really strong, bright tone and really energetic playing, and he gets a lot of character out of his notes, even the really high ones, especially in his solo in Ds. I really um, <laughs> yeah. isolated that one. He's actually got a lot of approaches throughout the album, from fiery and virtuosic to sensitive and even comical. I like the uh, moaning tone and speaking quality his solo had in Idki, or I-D-K-Y, or however yeah. we say that one. It was humorous and clever. Roy McGrath on the tenor sax had a great solo in Fire. I liked I liked that one a lot. Uh, building up from modest lines to a triumphant sound at the end. Yeah. Uh, when the second swinging middle eight comes around, right? You have the great sound there. There's youthful, eager-to-impress energy all over this album, and it's something jazz fans will enjoy, I think, from the first sounds. Check it out. Yeah. All right. We just got lucky with a nice segue between these albums because we just heard the famous chord changes from Giant Steps, John Coltrane's famous composition, and well, we're going to get some more Coltrane with our next recording and a lot of songs from that Giant Steps recording. This one's called Transformation on Storyville Records by American drummer Brian Melvin and two Danish musicians, guitarist Soren Lee and organist Mads Sondergaard. This came out on October 20th. 
So American drummer Brian Melvin, he's played with Jaco Pastorius, Joe Henderson, John Schofield, Michael and Randy Brecker, and he's done rock music as well, Bob Weir and Greg Allman. Now, he also is into world drumming, both tabla and African drumming. I wow. wonder if he's ever played one of my art teacher, Frank Giorgini's Udu. Maybe we'll find out. His album, Standards Zone, from back in 1986, which, by the way, was Pastorius's final recording, uh, made it to the number one spot on the jazz charts uh, for 13 consecutive weeks. Soren Lee, the guitarist here, has played with Ray Brown and Jim Hall, and Mad Sondergren is one of the top organists in Denmark. These are songs composed and or recorded by John Coltrane in his early 1960s period, my favorite period of his music, actually, and well known to most jazz fans. So here, I feel they keep most of the original spirit of the songs, and these are well-known tunes, so I won't talk about the structures of the tunes. Uh, new jazz listeners can go back and check out the original Coltrane recordings if you're not familiar with them. And what made this recording interesting for me is hearing these songs in an organ trio format. It's like what we heard recently when we heard Greg Lewis's Organ Monk Going Home recording with Thelonious Monk tunes in an organ trio. So it's a new atmosphere of timbre with organ and guitar to experience this great music. That and the solos we'll hear, with especially Soren Lee making a big impression with his guitar concept tone in playing. He just really takes over the atmosphere in a tune. So let's go through. Starting out, we've got a lot of tracks, 15 tracks, so That's I'll just try to pick music. some highlights. Yeah, Track one, Naima from 1960's Giant Steps, a well-known tune. This is keeping the original tempo and mood very much the same. Lee's guitar treats the melody gently with subtle bends, and Sondergaard's organ sounds great here. Uh, let's hear this get started, and I think if you know this tune, you'll like this atmosphere that they create. It's a lovely sound, really dreamy and delicate. Lee's solo on this one is great, working around ideas from the melody, and Sondergaard keeps his solo sparse and reserved, with attention to dynamics around the melody once more, and a fine ending on the rising organ lines on this one. Track two, My Favorite Things, of course Rodgers and Hammerstein from The Sound of Music, and the title track from John Coltrane's album from 1960. They use the same opening riff idea as Coltrane here, maybe with a bit more bounce. Nice cymbals and fills from Melvin on this one. And Lee's solo here is really great with harmonic exploration, double stops, and bluesy tinges. This is really exciting. So let's check out some of what he's doing on his solo. Thank you. 
have some instances playing there. Sundergaard is sparse and percussive in his spot uh, before taking it through the melody again into some more guitar improvisations from Lee and a vamping slowed down ending. Track three is Impressions. You can find this on 1961's Transcendence and also on Coltrane's 1963 album of the same name, Impressions. This one is really chugging along over organ bass, keeping the intensity of the original. Interesting phrasing in Lee's solo on this one. Sondergaard works lines bubbling up from the middle register of the organ, and those clear symbols from Melvin sound great. This one fades out with final lines from Lee. Yeah, and he was soloing when it faded out. That drove me crazy, as <laughs> Mike, always. Mike's pet peeve, yeah. <laughs> I, it's my pet peeve. It's fading on a jazz track. Track four, it's easy to remember, Rogers and Hart. And this is from 1963's great recording uh, ballads. You know, Coltrane wasn't known for his beautiful sound, really. But that album has him at his most gentle and beautifully toned. They treat it appropriately, gently, with soft articulation from Lee on the melody and a melodic fluid solo. A nicely developed, subtle solo from Sondergaard on the organ on this one. So let's hear some of his playing. gentle stuff there. This one has a fine ending of guitar arpeggios into final flourishes from Lee. Now we get a couple from Giant Steps 1960, Spiral track 5. This tune sounds great with that organ bass and Sondergaard gets a swinging solo and an intense solo from Lee as well with really burning speedy lines. After getting back to the melody it fades out with some final lines from Lee. Also from Giant Steps, track six, Cousin Mary. Sondergaard starts it out on the organ with nice working of the bass under the chords before Lee and Melvin join in. A little Charlie Parker quote in Lee's solo on this one. And Sondergaard has a bouncy solo helped out by some tasty rhythm playing from Lee. Track seven, Afro Blue, a Mongo Santa Maria composition. You can find this on Live at Birdland, 1964, and also Afro Blue Impressions. It's an album of performances that was recorded in 1963, but was released many years later in 1977. Melvin gets this started out on the drums with a cool 3-4 groove and cymbal center hit sounds, and Sondergaard gets a well-developed organ solo on this one, and Lee has some biting chords in his solo. This is a really great solo, so let's check out some of that in the middle of the tune. Thank you. 
connects it back to the melody line and then some more harmonic exploration in his lines to a very cool ending. Track 8, Body and Soul, Johnny Green tune. This is recorded in 1960, released on 1964's Coltrane's Sound. A dreamy ballad treatment with soft tone from Lee, warm organ chords and light brush textures from Melvin, a super fluid solo from Lee on this one, and a reserved organ solo from Sondergaard. A really great ending on this one with some intimate organ and guitar interaction. Track 9, Summertime, of course, George Gershwin. This is from 1960's My Favorite Things album. A great groove starts this one out before Lee gets into the famous melody and Sondergaard gets the walking bass going. Let's hear this nice groove as it gets going. groove there. Sondergaard has a little smolder going in his solo on this one, and Lee has some really outrageous licks in his solo. Nice double stops to take it out after they run through the melody again. Track 10, Miles' Mode. This is from 1962 album just entitled Coltrane. This has a really meandering melody line part that sounds really thick when it's played on guitar and organ together. Melvin has things really swinging with great fills and cymbal work on this tune, an intense solo from Lee with some edgy toned chords, and Sondergaard works some nice stuff in the lower register on his solo on this one. Track 11, I'll Wait and Pray. It's a tune written by George Treadwell and Jerry Valentine. It's on Coltrane Jazz from 1961. The first recording of this tune was by Billy Eckstein in his orchestra with vocals by Sarah Vaughan. It goes all the way back to 1944. It's another gentle ballad worked so gently by Lee with pearly toned notes and fine articulation, little slides, and tasty bends. Let's just take a listen to the beginning of it. out one by one there. Flowing solos from Sondergaard and Lee and subtle brushwork from Melvin make this a really tasty tune. Track 12 is Inchworm. 
This is also from 1962's Coltrane, a song originally performed by Danny Kaye in the 1952 film Hans Christian Andersen, written by Frank Loesser. It's a fun waltz tune. On Coltrane's version, the bass gets it going, but here everyone is in on the fun right away. Dizzying double-time lines from Lee in his solo on this one, and Sundergaard has some animated bluesy touches in his solo as well. Track 13 is M. Elvin. So M hyphen Elvin. And this is, well, a solo drum piece by Brian Melvin, and I'm guessing it's a tribute to Elvin Jones, Coltrane's drummer. And so this just shows off a bit of his stuff with some tasty tom work. So let's just uh, hear him a little bit on the drums since this is his recording. up to a climax and then comes down more softly. Track 14, The Homie Dance. This is from Ole Coltrane album, 1961. The original starts with some rhythmic acoustic bass done here on the organ. They get a nice groove worked up on a descending line idea. A great solo from Lee on this one, and it has a cool slowed down ending. And the recording ends up with a final track from Giant Steps recording, Countdown, a swift light swinging beat from Melvin, and reaching lines from Lee make this one a fun excursion. Sondergaard bubbles up some good solo lines on organ too, and the two have some nice syncopated final lines together on the ending. And that wraps it up. It's an exciting revisit of Coltrane's early 60s music. These performances keep the spirit of the originals, but give us something new with the great sound combination of organ and guitar. Fine drumming from Melvin, recorded in super clear detail. Lee's strong guitar presence and intense solos dominate throughout, but Sondergaard makes great moods with his tone choices on the organ, cool bass, and subtle solos. If you already love Coltrane's music, you're sure to enjoy it. And if you're a new jazz listener, check this out and then go back and hear Coltrane's original versions. When I think of uh, Coltrane, you know, of course, I associate it with the sax all the time. And sax right. players always love to play Coltrane's music. So this was a real surprise. You have a guitar player and an organ. It's not really an organ trio yeah. you know, playing these tunes. I was a little surprised by that. Not only that, it's a drum-led trio. And the drummer gives virtually all of the attention to the uh, two other members of his trio. It's just full of surprises, yeah. really. The album's kind of an unusual take, I thought, on these compositions. It was interesting to hear. Coltrane playing the guitar and organ. The organ playing on this album is pretty low-key mm. and seems to be going for a feel or specific sound, I think. He even solos kind of atmospherically. Like, I'll Wait and Pray is a good example of that. Um, this approach really leaves the guitar to carry a lot of the melodic responsibility on the album, and we're constantly focused on him, really. The tone used on both guitar and organ is slightly distorted and dirty-sounded. I kind of I like that tone. It's pretty cool. Also not what I expected, though. Yeah, it's it's a long album, 70-plus minutes. 
and you were hearing an organ trio. I think I could have used a, more, a little bit more variety on it. Um, I would have liked to have heard the organ step out a bit more on the solos. He was pretty laid back. But I did like the performances, and I liked the album. It seems like an invitation to relax the compositions that Coltrane played. And when I think of Coltrane, I don't really think laid back, but we get a lot of laid back uh, playing on this album. It was good, though. It was really interesting. I liked it. I just was really impressed with the presence Lee has and the kind of yeah. intensity in his solos. His guitar pretty, solos, yeah. Yeah, he's a formidable guitarist. You had that line like he was dripping out the notes. I thought that was a really good uh, description of what he does. It's yeah. pretty interesting. It kind of sounds like something from nature, like something a right. little, you know. He's got a subtle side too, but he can be yeah. really intense. So, yeah, I liked it. I you know listened to those tunes as I was growing up all separately on different right. recordings. It was kind of nice to have a little package of that period of Coltrane. Yeah, of course. I liked it too. I think I was just a little bit, you know, puzzled by the approach. I was kind of like, wow, this is really different. Mm. You know, but no, it was really enjoyable, I want yeah. to say. Yeah. All right. And our final selection, the new one from Art Hirahara, Echo Canyon. Of course. I love I'm, this guy. Yeah, Positone. <laughs> one of our favorite pianists. Yeah. This came out October 20th. Art Hirahara, originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. He's been in New York for the last 20 years. And we've talked about his two previous recordings, Open Sky from 2021 and Verdant Valley 2022, both also on Positone. And of course, we've heard him on numerous sessions backing other session leaders, mostly with his partners here, making up that great Positone rhythm section we're speaking of. Boris Kozlov on bass and Rudy Royston on drums and percussion. And all new original compositions from Art Hirahara for this one. As always, the great team of Mark Free Production and Nico O'Toole, the engineer for the Positone recordings. And we're going to get started with the title track of the recording, Echo Canyon. It's a solo piano intro of rising phrases echoing with sustain. Kozlov joins in with a bass line that moves in step with Hirahara's chords. It's such a beautiful beginning. We just got to hear this right away. So it feels like a slow 4-4 four, four there for that first eight measure as you hear Royston adding that cymbal roll. Then there's another eight measure section with fuller chords and cymbals added. And then things become more animated with the 6-8 feel for an eight measure section. It lightens, keeping the same feel for Hirahara to improvise with ringing melodic ideas and chords. Nice smooth connection in his lines with textures and fills from Royston below. The intensity builds and the chords become more percussive and it comes down for a lyrical bowed bass solo over the earlier four beats section we heard that theme to a rippling ending of piano. It's just really gorgeous start. Track two is called Aoi Blue, B-L-U, which is an interesting title. Aoi, 
is blue in Japanese, but the Japanese concept of blue is a little bit different. It also encompasses part of the green spectrum. So, for example, the traffic light color is called blue in Japanese instead of green. So, but it it does have an icier look to it though than the yeah. green lights in the U.S. I think they're right to call it blue here anyway. It could they, be. they designed yeah. it that way. Apparently, I'm told yeah. that uh, midori, which means green, is not really a traditional Japanese vocabulary word. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, maybe a different cultural color concept. They probably used Aoi for both colors like Could long be, ago. Yeah, yeah. Hmm, interesting. This is another really pretty tune. There's an eight-measure intro with descending piano trickles over an ostinato bass line from Kozlov. The melody is catchy with nice harmonies. It seems to be in an AAB, a 24-measure form, with another three measures at the end to pause before repeating. Hidahara is soloing from there over ringing bass from Kozlov and light drum ideas from Royston. It flows and builds with rhythmic energy, working back to the melody again getting some repeated phrases into more build-up and energetic piano improvisations driven by Royston's drumming to a ringing finish. Track 3, Aftermath, a rubato and rippling intro, skittering cymbals bring in a chordy piano melody over heartbeat bass from Kozlov. Interestingly, it sounds like it alternates measures of 5 and 4 beats. That's how I hear it anyway. Let's take a listen. here twice, and then Hirahara gets solo space to show off a nice touch in dynamics from soft to ringing, around the melodic pattern again, and some repeated chord patterns for Royston to work up some action on the drums underneath, and Hirahara gives it a rippling ending. It's a great sense of space and unforced flow in this tune. Track 4, To the Sky. A 16-measure, medium-slow, even-beat melody that has a folk quality to it, rich harmonies and suspended chords, bass and drums drop out for Hirahara to take a solo rubato run through it next, and they return for Hirahara's improvisations that focus on beautiful tone and ringing melodic ideas. They wrap it up with another statement of the melody, like the beginning, with a repeated final cadence. Track 5, Shura. A change of pace with some rhythmic trickery for this one. I guess you can count it in four, or at least you can try to. Uh, Kozlov starts it out with a dangerous syncopated ostinato for four measures. Royston joins in for another round with some piano chords. The triplet subdivisions help you to feel it, and then Hirahara leads the way with the rhythmic melody. There's a lot of cool interaction with Kozlov's bass as well. Let's hear this one get going.
keeps you on your toes, smooths out as it goes on. Seems to be like 28 measures in total in the melody phrase there. Hirahara has a really exciting solo with lots of percussive percolating and some contrasting smooth runs in there. So we should skip ahead a bit and hear a little bit of this exciting solo. Obviously, I want to let that one keep playing. (laughs) Anyway, they get back to the original melody section and then pick up some phrases from it for Royston to work up a busy ending punctuated by piano chords. Track six is called Major Waltz. There's a 20-measure intro of bass and piano lines that move in waves to the main melody. It's as labeled a major waltz, but Hirahara's chord voicings are really great here. It's a 16-measure idea with an extra measure to breathe before we hear that pattern again. Let's hear this tune's beginning. From there, the improvisations start, sometimes with a rhythmic lilt and sometimes with smooth, even lines that flow across the tight interaction below from Kozlov and Royston. Kozlov has a solo next, really making his notes sing out, and they take it around the melody section twice again, really ringing it out to a final ending section that finishes up with some unexpected but soothing harmonic changes. Overrising bass flutters from Kozlov. Track 7, The More Things Change. This one has a great light swinging groove from Royston that changes up a lot under the rhythmic piano melody with some stop time feel and accents. I'm not really sure where the melody ends and the soloing starts on this one because the eight measure sections seem very similar harmonically and maybe that's the point of what's going on here. Anyway, Hirahara works up a rollicking solo on this one and then has some eight and four measure trading with Royston who gets some really speedy stick work in before they work through the melody sections again to a slightly slowed ending. Track 8, Mia Bella, a pretty rubato piano melody that flows with motion over solid bass notes from Kozlov, synced perfectly. 
Rustin decorates with soft malleted symbols, and Hirahara gets to float on his own until a steady tempo is introduced with symbols and ringing bass notes, working into improvisations from Hirahara. Let's take a listen right from that point. there. It gets back to a rubato flow for the ending melody and some pretty final piano trickles. And the recording ends up with a tune called Spider's Dance. There's an eight measure intro setting the mood for the melody that has an interesting combination of syncopation and hesitation as the lines build up. It's 18 measures of melody and they go around it twice. Piano and bass sync up on a little line into a really cool solo from Boris Kozlov. And I always love to hear his bass solo, so let's listen to what he does on this tune. triplet figures he works in there. Well, Hirohara works up an exciting solo after that with percussive chords and zipping lines, and Royston gets a solo too, with a cool bass drum kick in it before they take it through the melody a couple more times to a rippling piano ending over bowed bass. Well, whenever these three play together, there's going to be great interaction and rhythmic excitement, and we get a good dose of that in this program, but the focus here is on melody and tone throughout Hirohara's original compositions. There's a lot of gorgeous sounding piano on this album, played with great taste and class, as we've come to expect from Art Hirahara. Rich chord voicings, light touches, and smooth lines contrasted with some exciting percussive climaxes. Overall, the atmosphere is uplifting in the positive nature of the melodies, with lots of beauty to discover in this Echo Canyon. We always think of Art Hirahara as a classy pianist, and this record is all class. Yeah. He's got spacious chords, gorgeous harmonies in general and you can just sink into them. In fact, this album features all of my favorite qualities about him, you know, as mm. isolated from his more adventurous excursions, like from his previous solo album, which I, I liked, but I didn't get into it as much. He's in especially good form here with gorgeous chord colors. It's a pretty mellow album overall, mm -hmm. perfect for late night, or maybe as a pairing with that uh, Marco Albanetti uh, <laughs> you know, postcards <laughs> yeah. from Italy album. You can put that on for your lady friends, maybe. 
Of course, Boris Kosloff and Rudy Royston provide excellent and totally unobtrusive accompaniment, too. The recording is studio quality and sounds rich and fantastic on all instruments. It's here to have a show. He plays beautifully. And overall, you know, Kozlov gets some pretty great solos in it, though, as well. And uh, the album's immediately appealing. I hope it finds an audience, because I think Hirahara is worth listening to, as Adult Podcast wants you, listeners, to be listening <laughs> to Art Hirahara. We really like him. We're going to keep talking about everything he records until his name is as high and often mentioned as uh, a lot yeah. of other pianists. That we, we want hear. Boris Kozlov up there, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Rudy Royston as well, because we like all of them. Well, these guys record so much together on these positone recordings that their mm. synergy is just incredible. They move as one entity together. It's really great to listen to them. There you have it. A really cool jazz program and an interesting variety in classical this week. Right. And uh, maybe one of the longest episodes we've had in a while. Although, I don't know. I mean, it'll get cut down a little bit, yeah. but uh, it might not be as long as we think. Although, we did spend a lot of time on the first two classical albums. They took some unpacking, I think. Anyway, we're going to be back again next week with uh, another episode of kind of piano-focused music, in, both in classical and jazz this time. Yeah, but it's not piano in the spotlight, though. It's kind of, piano is kind of like uh, crashing the wedding, I think. Hanging around. <laughs> it's hanging around. Place, yeah. It's not crashing. It's, it should be there. That's right. not always the main focus, but it's always there. Yeah, so I've got piano on all three of my albums, but we're going to have that... One, because we we love uh, another pianist we love on this podcast is Vikingur Olafsson, the uh, right. Icelandic classical pianist, mm-hmm. and we're going to hear his Bach Goldberg variations, uh, which is getting a lot of press anyway. But uh, we we just like him a lot, so we're going to talk right. about it too. So he's a pretty uh, famous uh, pianist. And I got to sneak in a little Billy Test next week. He's not the leader, but uh, yeah. one of our favorite jazz pianists as well, and we'll hear a little bit of him as well. So if you want to find out those recordings, we'll have a playlist of the albums up not too long after this episode is published. You can find that on Deezer. There'll also be a link to it from our Facebook page. Don't forget to check out the same difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard podcast. There's a link to it at the end of the description. You'll hear those guys with their little promo as soon as we sign off here. Can I just say, you know what we should do for Christmas? We should send the same jazz podcast, like a a file of bass solos that we like <laughs> because they on their podcast they often say they don't like the bass solo but I think we need to change that we gotta change that yeah. <laughs> we gotta change that mm. I think we can too I think we heard two really good bass solos tonight especially actually I, I have on my list a couple albums of just all solo bass recordings they would really love that <laughs> <laughs> next time they come on our podcast I, yeah. I can't imagine that what that would be like oh but if they come on again we're gonna have to hit them with one of those that'd be fun <laughs> that would be fun All right. Well, thanks again, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And we're just about talked out for this episode. Any final words, Mike? No, no final words. I'm I'm just thinking of my bed. It's because it's it's nighttime. When we do this at night and when this is over, I'm usually ready for bed and the next day of work. You know what this podcast is like? It's like when I was a kid and we used to, the wonderful world of Disney was on TV. It's Sunday. It's 7 p.m. in New York, and you didn't want the wonderful world of Disney to end because when it ended, you had to go to bed, and the next day was school, you know? So <laughs> right. that was like the last- Back to the real know, world. Yeah, back to the real world. <laughs> 
Anyway, we'll wake up and get started on listening to those new recordings for next week's episode. That's going to be 139. So check out those playlists, and we'll see you again next week for another episode. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.